Welcome to the Angelico Project Presents. The Angelico Project is a lay Catholic initiative in Greater Cincinnati, committed to evangelizing souls and transforming the culture, promoting the good, the true, and the beautiful through the arts, thought, and culture. Today's episode is a discussion about fairy tales and the Christian imagination, featuring Father Dwight Longenecker, Joan Radizak, and Emily Mackey. Without further ado, let's begin. Hello, and welcome to a conversation about fairy tales hosted by the Angelico Project. I am Emily Mackey, and I am honored to serve on the advisory board of the Angelico Project. And today I am delighted to be able to host this conversation with Joan Radizak and Father Dwight Longenecker. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce both of them to you. Joan Radizak had been teaching literature, history, language arts, and logic to middle school students at the Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori in Cincinnati, Ohio, for the past 10 years. As a finally professed lay Dominican, she will be living out that vocation teaching at St. Gertrude's School in Madeira beginning this fall. She is the mother of four children whom she homeschooled through high school. In addition, she has taught children from kindergarten through high school and area homeschool co-ops, including literature and history at Mary's Seat of Wisdom for 18 years. Thank you for joining us, Joan. Thank you, Emily, for having me. And then Father Dwight Longenecker was brought up in an evangelical home in Pennsylvania after graduating from the fundamentalist Bob Jones University with a degree in speech and English. He went to study theology at Oxford University. Eventually, he was ordained as an Anglican priest and served as a curate, a school chaplain in Cambridge, and a country parson. In 1995, Father Longenecker and his family were received into the Catholic Church. For 10 years, they continued to live in England, where he worked as a freelance writer and charity worker. Then in 2006, the door opened to return to the United States and be ordained as a Catholic priest. Father Longenecker now serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He is an author, blogger, speaker, and podcaster, which includes a podcast series entitled True Fairy Tales. Father Longenecker, thank you for being here today with us as well. Thanks for this opportunity to talk about fairy tales. So I thought maybe the best way to start this conversation today, it seems almost strange for three adults to sit together and talk about fairy tales. It's a little surprising. So I thought first we would just begin by, if you could share what it is that has interested you as an adult in fairy tales. Why do you feel that this is a worthwhile topic or what is sort of your background with fairy tales? Well, I can jump right in with that one. Um, when raising my children, I had started right off the bat doing nursery rhymes and saying them over and over and over again. And I really credit that with a lot of their language acquisition because they kept hearing all of these nursery rhymes. And then we moved on to fairy tales. And just hearing those stories over and over again just kind of becomes part of their bones. It gives them beautiful sentence structure. It, um, enlivens their imagination. And when we really started to get into the symbolism of fairy tales was uh, one time we were watching um, a movie on King Arthur and there was this scene where King Arthur gets killed and uh, it's the fault of Guinevere and Lancelot's affair. And I just, my 10 year old son was sitting next to me and I just said, and there it is, the fault of one couple brings the whole kingdom down. 
And my son looked at me with these big eyes and just said, that's just like Genesis. And I said, yeah. And he, he was just eagerly watching the rest of the movie at that point. So those stories have Catholic elements in them that allow us to see the truths in our own faith. Yes, and I should add also that um, you mentioned adults talking about fairy tales. In fact, the idea that fairy tales are only for children is a, a comparatively recent phenomenon, uh, and one which J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both uh, abhorred because... Um, they realized that the roots of fairy tales are deep within folk, um, uh, folk religion and folk culture, uh, and that these fairy tales have been part of culture for a long time. And their roots before that uh, were, of course, in myth uh, and mythology, which uh, goes right back into the very roots of human civilization. Um, right around the world. One of the writers I'm interested in is Joseph Campbell, uh, who called himself a mythologist, and he traced the different myths uh, from all the different, many, many different cultures all around the world and, and collected them and, and, and told, spoke about them. And the myths and the folk tales and the fairy tales all and fantasy literature, uh, contemporary fantasy literature, all merge into really one kind of big umbrella um, category, which uh, Tolkien called the world of fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E, -E, uh, for want of a better term. Um, and the reason that they're called, um, you know, you, we think of them as only for little kids now, is because in the 19th century, uh, the brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen began to collect these, uh, these folk tales. And uh, because they wanted them to be palatable for nice Christian families, they very often sanitized them. They removed some of the more terrifying elements, um, some of the, quite frankly, the lustful elements, some of the violent elements, uh, and they removed those elements from the stories uh, with a well-meaning intent of making them um, happier little tales for children. And then our friend Walt Disney came along, and um, he finished the job. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he, um, he, he turned these fairy tales into these cutesy little cartoons. Um, if you take Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, for instance, uh, this is a terrifying story uh, of, of, of a girl whose life is threatened by a wicked stepmother, and the dwarves that she meets in the forest are, are not you know, sleepy and dopey and sneezy and dock. Um, they're, they're actually kind of dwarves and, and any kind of misshapen or twisted individual in in the fairy stories the folk tales are always a horrifying um uh kind of character and the dwarves as well are uh these um quite nasty creatures really in a lot of the stories remember the story of rumpelstiltskin which was a um a nasty greedy um, little dwarf and a lot of the dwarves in these stories and and, and any kind of uh, abnormal human being uh is 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 portrayed as a, a, a character of terror and, and fear. Um, I hope I'm not getting off track here, but Walt Disney sort of finished the job of making these stories, cutesy little tales for children and hanging, you know, birdies and bunnies singing in the woods and all this cute stuff. <laughs> and that's not really what is fairy tales are about. And, and whenever we tell our children these fairy stories, they actually have a deep fascination um, um, you know, I don't know when telling your children the fairy tales. I, I told my children the fairy fairy tales, and uh, they're they're intrigued by the the dark elements. Um, and um, so, sanitizing them too much actually kind of uh, removes their power. 
Well, when you think about it, we are surrounded in a world that has dark elements in it. There's all yes. kinds of violence and evil and all of that. And I know one of the objections that people have to fairy tales is it's too scary for my child. But children already lived in, in a scary world that fairy tales give them um, kind of a way to make sense of that in a world that's other than this one. And you don't just focus on the negative aspects, the fear factor. You also see heroism and bravery and persistence and the grace of God coming through fairy godmothers or, you know, whatever fairy elements might be in there. So it, it gives a child, I think, a better understanding of the world and a way to make sense of this world. Yes, I think G.K. Chesterton was the one who said, yes, uh, fairy tales have dragons, but it also teaches children that dragons can be defeated. Um, and, and that's, he, you know, he's always had a pithy way of putting things. Um, uh, so, Joan, uh, I don't know whether you've read the uh, book, The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bietelheim. I have to say I haven't. Okay, it's an interesting book. He, he actually survived the Nazi concentration camps and came to the U.S. and worked as a child psychiatrist. Um, his reputation has been marred because there have been allegations made against him uh, on child abuse and so forth. But uh, his book, Uses of Enchantment, is really interesting because he says that the fairy tales have a function within childhood, which is very important. And you, you hinted at this uh, about dealing with the dark elements. Uh, and he explains how uh, a child lives in a world of uh, imagination and, and in a world of emotion, especially before the age of seven or eight. They're not operating as rational, reasonable beings. They're operating as, as a, a soup of Im emotions and instincts and um, uh, imagination. So therefore, the fairy tales help them to deal with some of the challenges they have in their life, um, which they don't know how to deal with. No, and it's a way for them imaginatively to release those negative uh, feelings that they have uh, in a way which is, which is safe. Uh, and I, anyway, this is a, you might have a comment on that, Joan, which uh, see what you think of that theory. Well, it's a very fascinating theory and definitely gets into a deeper psychological side of things. But, you know, moving maybe up a level a little bit, not quite that that deep. When you think that um, a lot of the folk tales were meant to be cautionary tales too, this mm -hmm. was character training for people. This is this is how one generation taught the next generation that there are things you need to be aware of. You know, if you see a very slick talking wolf in the woods, who uh, you know wants to be your friend, well, maybe you better think twice about that. So. Uh, teaching cautionary tales or tales that teach character. I think of the wild swans and the character of Elise, who is willing to work with these nettles that bruise her hands and her feet when she's crushing them and refuses to speak and defend herself, even though she's being accused of being a witch, but she's really trying to break the spell that has kept her brothers as wild swans and seeing her persistence in that and her, her willingness to lay down her life for that. So, you know, whether it's reaching some deep psychological part of the child or also just teaching them how to be a good human being in the world or how to be a cautious human being in the world or how to be an adventurous human being in the world. Fairy tales encompass all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, although Beetleheim analyzes this, it, it all happens as a package, as, as the, story, the story is told and the child experiences the story uh, and all of these things. Uh, talking about learning life skills, what about the three little pigs? Um, <laughs> Which teaches a child, you know, don't waste your 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 what what you've got on the the stupid straw and the sticks, which we, can be blown down. 
take do the hard work and invest in the time and and the energy and the skills that needs to build a brick house if you're going to be safe from the wolf so <laughs> uh, and furthermore there's a kind of interesting sharing there in which the uh, the two foolish pigs come and finally get refuge in in the brick house uh and the person who has been sensible should say oh you know shouldn't say go away too bad you know this is my house they should he should say okay come on you can shelter with me you know you've been stupid but i'm going to forgive you uh, so yes there's all sorts of beautiful skills uh life skills and uh, that can be taught in these and and you don't have to tell them at the end like a fable and say and so you see the responsible <laughs> pig builds a brick house um no they learn it just by sharing the story and I would really uh, agree wholeheartedly with that. I think sometimes parents want to say, well, how do I get into some of these deeper meanings with my child? Well, first of all, childhood is just to absorb all of this and to be in that imaginative world. And you don't need to necessarily start tearing things apart. But I think nothing kills a great story than to force someone to dissect it. If they want to, it's great. It's exhilarating and exciting. But if you're trying to, it ends up being a lecture to your children. So um, sometimes a simple thing to do is just to mention something that you saw in the story and then let it drop. You know, if they pick up the ball and want to continue with that analysis, great. But it, sometimes it's enough just to get them to realize that these stories do have another meaning. And the, the process of discovery is what makes it exciting. And it also is makes it more indelible. Hearing someone else's interpretation, eh, maybe you remember it or not, but, but finding that nugget for yourself is a thrill and it really sticks in your mind much better than a lecture. Well, and there's a power of story, too, that enables the story to, to communicate. I mean, it communicates with words, but there's a way in which it communicates more than words, you know? So if you talk about the importance of obedience and give a whole lecture on why that's, you know, important and you should obey and see how these characters <laughs> didn't obey and what happened to them, you know, um, it's not going to resonate in the same way that the story does and that their their little minds are making or their, you know, maybe slightly bigger, old, you know, little minds um, are making connections and they're thinking and processing and it's kind of planting seeds in their heart um, far more deeply than when we try to, you know, grind a message into them. One of the things which interests me in our culture is that uh, we have, on the one hand, become a very intellectual, analytical culture. So as Joan has said, we feel we have to um, explicate the story and explain it and, and, and write a paper about it or something. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in our culture, um, Visual storytelling through film and television is more powerful and more omnipresent than it's ever been before. After I left the Anglican ministry in England, I wasn't, it wasn't a guarantee that I would be ordained as a Catholic priest. And so I trained as a scriptwriter um, and uh, therefore studied story structure and myth uh, and how film and stories actually work. And um, you're right, the story itself in participating in the film, the drama, or the story um, is something we participate in at a deep level. Uh, and the scriptwriter teacher that I had was great because he said, look, you're dealing in the language of emotions here. And the, you, the point of the story is not so much to get the person to think, well, okay, but you're really trying to move their emotions uh, and move their um, uh, the experience they have, the excitement, the thrill, the fear, the laughter, the joy, the tears. Um, that's what people go to the movies for. That's what they want a story to do. Um, and that is a holistic experience of the whole person. Um, in fact, he had a little catchphrase. He says, I want to move my audience so much that they leave the, the, the movie theater thinking. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it was a nice way of putting it. And I think fairy tales and all stories can have that same power, as you've mentioned, a power which um, goes right down to the deepest level of our of our person. Um, and the explications uh, and the explanations are are secondary, really. And this is an interesting topic um, that kind of leads us into kind of contrasting our vision of um, reality, the human person, all of these sorts of things today, um, especially, you know, uh, with the, um, in the post-enlightenment world, how we view things um, and how fairy tales invite us into a different worldview. So do you have any thoughts on kind of what is an enlightenment mentality and how do fairy tales invite us to something more or something deeper? Well, I don't want to hog the conversation, but I'll just say very quickly that um, my most recent book is called Immortal Combat. And it's this book about um, the cross and the sin of the world. But I intentionally used a lot of references to myth, uh, Dante's Inferno, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, and lots of different uh, imaginative uh, references and images so that the communication could happen at that uh, imaginative, emotional level, not just at the cerebral, analytical level. Um, and this is what I think is very much missing in our evangelization as Catholics. Um, we, we, I think it was Bertrand Russell, the atheist, who said, poor little talkative Christianity. In other words, we, 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 we talk a lot, you know, and we theorize a lot, and we write lots of words. Um, stories are, are, are action, our are faith in action, and, and they, they engage the emotions, and that's what, that's what we need. We need, to, we need to be telling some more, more stories. And, and I would add to that that it's it reaches an emotional level, but it fairy tales don't leave the reality behind. So when you talk about the Enlightenment, you know this this focus on realism and the rejection of the supernatural, that fairy tales are actually very real. You know they live in an imaginary world; imaginary things happen to them, but they speak about timeless truths. They speak about real human condition. So um, I think, Father, you have something on that. That. that real fairy tales and true fairy tales, that, that idea that these things are real and true. And this is the other thing that's magical about um, fairy tales. Remember when we're talking about fairy tales, I, I'm talking about fantasy literature um, uh, of all kinds. And that is that uh, in our scientific world, which rejects the miraculous and rejects the supernatural and atheists and agnostics and scientific people want to rule that stuff out. At the same time, we have this fantastic growth in fantasy literature and superhero movies and um, fantasy films and novels and all the rest, um, in which in all of these elements, one of the, all of these stories, one of the key elements of a fairy story is the supernatural. Okay, okay, that's almost a definition of a fairy story, that there is in one way or another, to a greater or lesser extent, um, the element of the supernatural interfering and, and intersecting with the what we call the real world. And in other words, uh, fantasy literature and fairy tales are keeping alive in the general culture and the general imagination the reality of the supernatural. And for Christians, this ought to be a thing in which to rejoice. Sadly, I, I feel that very often we as pastors and priests and Christians are running away from that and, and um, because we're scared that people will say, oh, yeah, religion is just a fairy tale. Um, no, this is the, religion is the place where fairy tale and reality meet. Um, and uh, this is one of the things I write about quite a lot. Well, it's just that desire in the human heart for mystery and something transcendental, that it's going to go beyond our normal experience that 
um, we want to meet God on on a different plane. You know, it's it's this call to our human heart that our home is not here. We know there's something bigger than this world. We know there's something more to this world, and so we need that mystery. And I think that, as you said, Father, sometimes I think the churches try to become so secular, try to look like everybody else, look cool, let's fit in with everyone else, instead of embracing that mystery, because um, we have a longing in our heart for that. There is another aspect to some Christians who um, are wary. You know, there's, there's, I don't know what your feeling is about Harry Potter. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but um, some Christians will say, oh, you must read that because it glamorizes witchcraft. Well, this is what fairy stories do. They, they deal with magic and they deal with witchcraft and wizards and, and bad people and good people. I, I'm not so worried about that. I, I think our children are smart. I think they can figure out um, when there's a struggle between good and evil. And th this is, you know, if they're baptized and they're being brought up in a Christian home, I, I don't think there's any fear from these things myself, although I hear what people are saying. Um, because uh, this element of the supernatural can also lead, therefore, to an increase in faith, where people are aware that um, wonderful things can happen. And, of course, we're not talking about casting spells and, and, and doing hocus-pocus, but we're saying God is alive in the world, the Holy Spirit is alive in our lives, and the supernatural dimension is a reality. I, I've always, since I've been studying all of this, have thought that the, these elements of magic. When you talk about a fairy godmother, she's a godmother. And so what is she but that intercessor? She's the, a, a channel of grace for this person. So a lot of times this um, supernatural being who steps in and, and gives them specific powers to overcome this evil, this can really be seen in the light of faith as grace, the action of the Holy Spirit. Um, and you look at fairy tales, there's not a lot of individualism in there. It's not a lonely quest. Usually there are companions along the way, helps along the way, and so it very much resembles our life in the church. Yes, it does. Um, uh, the, the next book project I'm hoping to work on is actually called, the, uh, the working title is um, uh, How to Be a Spiritual Hero, and I'll be using the hero's quest to actually chart the spiritual progress that we make through life. Uh, and so this, all these things are, are very, very important for evangelization because in our world, I feel that, um, I personally feel that intellectually speaking, we are moving from, uh, you know, we talk about modernism and then postmodernism. I think we're moving into a post-postmodern uh, <laughs> phase, which is actually going to be um, an increase in the visual arts, an increase in storytelling, an increase in film and use of screen uh, to tell stories visually, and that we're going to be moving much more towards an emotional, uh, instinctive reaction to our world, which is far less analytical and intellectual. I think the analytical, intellectual, rational type of thing has, has played itself out in, in intellectually speaking. I'm not saying that we should not be studying Thomas Aquinas uh, and philosophy. We should. But the secular world, the, 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 the ration, rationalism has, has reached a dead end. Um, you make a good point about the, um, the visual arts, movies, that people seem that seems to be the way we primarily get our storytelling. But I want to make a case for all the parents out there to be reading fairy tales to their children. And um, I, one of the dangers with watching a movie is that you have this beautiful artistic impression of what that director wanted, what's in that person's mind. But when you're listening to a story, 
you're creating your own imaginative world. You're seeing things through your own eyes. And I think it exercises the imaginative, imaginative and creative parts of the brain. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I love Peter Jackson's version of Lord of the Rings. I've watched it over and over again. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, now, whenever I read Lord of the Rings, Gandalf <laughs> is always Ian McKellen and Frodo right. is always Elijah Wood and so forth, because that uh, imagination, that film has negated my imagination. And this is one of the reasons I, I recorded my pod, my fairy tales as podcasts, so that they would actually be... Um, you know, there'd be stories that were being told. And I, I would like to encourage parents to, to take advantage of reading stories to your children. Even when they're older, you can have story time even with high school students. And uh, we made story read-alouds uh, just part of our family, and it gave us time to discuss things, but time to work together, to be together as a family, all focused on this same thing. And so, you know, think about it. It's summertime now. Take a blanket outside, look at the stars, let the fireflies come out, and read fairy tales to your kids. And if it's in the wintertime, then put fire in the fireplace, read fairy tales to your kids. It's going to be such a great opportunity for them to use their imagination to um, come together as a family and to create memories that last as well. So that's the advantage over just sitting there watching a movie, I think. Yeah, and be creative with them. You know, um, my kids made fun of me because I used to take all the voices, you know, and I would... Yeah. I would say, you know, I would be the big bad wolf and I'd be the little pig at the three pigs or right. whatever, you know, and, and to take the voices and encourage the kids to take the different voices and act them out and, and dramatize a little bit. Um, it's a great family activity and it's very creative. And this is related, you know, to how do we encounter a or counter an enlightenment mentality part of that is helping children develop their christian imagination um, and sometimes we think well you know we don't want to to overemphasize feelings because if you just do whatever you feel like doing then you know you can get yourself into all sorts of trouble right so a lot of times we we try to overemphasize rational arguments or denying any sort sense of feeling but it's so important that we that we help to foster a good imagination to experience these stories and and the excitement. I mean, I, I like um, uh, Tolkien talks about you catastrophe instead of a catastrophe. You know, a fairy tale has the ending of a you catastrophe, eu catastrophe. So this sense of joy after some horrible thing happens, and then everything turns around and ends in great joy, and we have happy you know we, we experience joy because of that um, and and having those um, you know family read alouds that was very instrumental in my life my mom read to us you know in high school and on as well and now you know I'm reading to, to our children um, who are not that you know they're still really little but um, I feel like those uh, even that simple act of reading together is a way of, of helping them form that Christian imagination. So what would you, you know, how would you, um, what are other ways that you would say are, uh, are ways to help them foster a Christian imagination? Or what even does that mean? That's such a foreign term to many of us today. Well, I'll tell you one, I'll come in with a, uh, a bit of a curveball here, which maybe you didn't expect. But, um, and that is that the liturgy, when it is properly celebrated, actually does all of this uh, in our worship. Now, um, 
in, in my parish in South Carolina, we just built a new church. We had the opportunity to build a new church. So we built a beautiful church with stained glass windows and a high ceiling and a baldacchino and a classical style. And our worship is we take time to have beautiful music. I train the altar boys to celebrate the Mass with me in a reverent and a solemn and a ceremonial manner with beautiful vestments and flowers. And we don't go over the top, but this actually, in action, teaches children the value of drama, the value of symbol, the value of beauty, the value of uh, ceremony and ritual. All of these things also connect with literature and connect with stories and connect with all of these rich things. So you say how to engage the imagination. My, my altar boys, I get choked up telling this, I have 10 or 12, I have to turn them away. They come running into Mass saying, can I serve today, Father? Because they love the ritual and the ceremony and the, the wearing the robes and taking their place in a sort of ordered, structured way, which is also beautiful. And I, I watch them during Mass. They, they're not sort of picking their nose and slouching and wondering how soon it's going to be over. They're actually absorbed in it. Uh, and we're seeing our children respond in that way says to me that the liturgy to answer your question is actually one of the ways to engage our imagination um what a shame therefore that so much of our catholic liturgy today is banal and trite um but it's a symptom of our age i suppose if you look at um the development of theater after the fall of the roman empire because the church had banned um any kind of theater performances because they were so tied to gladiator games and things like that. And then what really began was in the liturgy, in the church, the just, and we still do it to this day. We act out Palm Sunday. We act out the whole um, passion of our Lord. And that actually got to be too much. It started to take over the liturgy a little bit. So then they moved those, those dramatizations of the gospels out into other festivals and things like that. And eventually the guild system took over, you know, so you would have um, the bread bakers would be teaching about the Eucharist. And um, I, I love that the butchers did the passion of Christ. I mean, that's disturbing, but it kind of makes sense in a way, but people learned their faith in the middle ages from these festivals, three day festivals of all of these different guilds presenting the truths of the gospel and dramatizing them. And so it, it, it really helped bring alive all of those stories. And if you go back even farther, you can just look at Jesus himself. How did he teach the crowds? He didn't stand up there and say, I'm go now going to give five proofs for the existence of God, you know, which is, I, I love Thomas Aquinas and I love that. But he taught them in ways that they could understand. And so he taught them about God, these very deep things, and yet he did them in a way, you know, how do you explain heaven to these, these poor people? It's like a marriage feast the greatest, joyous thing that they could think of. I think we do have to be a little bit careful sometimes in talking about fairy tale and the, and the faith um, to uh, make sure that we're not relegating the faith to a fairy tale. And we have to re complete, remember that uh, conversa famous conversation between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, uh, in which um, Tolkien was explaining to Lewis that the gospel story story operated on him just like all the other myths, touching into the point of the eucatastrophe, that um, that surprise ending which gives us a lift and a joy and makes us feel that uh, there's a divine providence, uh, someone else was in charge here that was bigger than what we thought. Um, and that Lewis uh, admitted this, that the gospel story, better more than any other, gives that the resurrection is the biggest eucatastrophe ever. Whoa, we didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, he's come back. Um, and uh, 
and then uh, Tolkien said to Lewis, but the difference is it's a myth that really happened. And this is why fairy tales are so exciting, because all of these things echo through. And uh, as you said, your son recognized the Genesis story in the, in the King Arthur story. In all of these stories, we should then, our children should then be recognizing, oh, there's Jesus. There's the Blessed Mother. There are the apostles. There are the saints. There are the angels and so forth. And so it does resonate and echo. And we can say with Tolkien, uh, these are fairy stories, if you'd like, which really happened. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the elements, the Christian themes that, you know, we see fairly consistently in different fairy tales? Oh, well, there are numerous Christian themes throughout the um, fall and redemption and um, perseverance to the ends, the effects of, of grace, um, the, the need for the church to support us. Um, they're just the life after death, you know, and I, I want to address one thing that I know kind of troubles people sometimes when they think of fairy tales. Take Cinderella, for example. Well, what are we teaching our daughters? You know, you have drudgery and you have this terrible life, but someday some guy's going to come along and he's going to sweep you off your feet and you're going to live happily ever after. What a terrible thing to be teaching our daughters, right? Well, if you're living in an age of enlightenment, if you're just looking at the plain realism, yeah, you're teaching your daughters the wrong thing. But if you see it on a spiritual level and see that this is the soul that's marred by sin or, you know, in this trapped by the devil. And now here, the handsome prince is Christ himself, who's come to and sees the inner beauty of the soul and elevates her and brings her to heaven. This isn't that now, you know, I can just go shopping every day because I have a very rich husband. This is living in the next life. So if you don't See if you don't see some of the fairy tales through Christian imagination and you secularize them instead, you can end up with something almost worse than just the straight story. Mm -hmm. we, we sometimes forget as well that uh, much of this imagery is, is laced through the scriptures. Unfortunately, the Protestant Reformation has led people to teach, to treat the scriptures like um, kind of like a, a source book for proof texts for doctrines or a rule book uh, of regulations to, to be followed. Of course, this is not the scriptures. The scriptures are a very rich literary source of stories, the stories of God's interaction with, with humanity from Adam, our first parents, Adam and Eve, right through all of the sagas of the Old Testament and so forth. And these kind of stories, um, the same, I, I did this in my book, Romance of Religion. I, I showed how the, the stories in the Old Testament, again, are fairy stories that really happened. So if you take the uh, wedding stories in the Old Testament, for instance, of um, Isaac going to look for his, his wife, um, did he marry Rebecca or Sarah? I don't, oh, no, he married Rebecca. He goes and finds Rachel or Rebecca, whichever one it was. Um, and Rachel this is and a, Leah. Rachel and Leah, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're, this is a Cinderella story, right? Okay, and, and, Ruth, and Ruth and Boaz. Um, there's a Cinderella story. You know, poor Ruth who marries, uh, is, uh, is um, uh, uh, engaged to, to Boaz, who, who rescues her from her poverty and so forth. Uh, and... Uh, David and Goliath, uh, well, there's Jack and the Beanstalk, okay? <laughs> and so all these same stories and symbols echo down through the Old Testament, but again, they really happened. Um, and we, these same symbols and characters and storylines recur and echo down through um, the stories of our, of our faith. 
I was shocked to read um, fairly recently Rapunzel to um, our daughters. And I mean, I've, you know, obviously I knew the story, but when I was reading it to them, I was so struck by the, the mother of Rapunzel when she wants to eat the greens from the garden that is forbidden to her. She says, if I don't eat of that, I will die. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is the exact language that we have in Genesis 3 as part of the story. And when she eats of this, you know, in a sense, it causes death. She loses her child and all of these things. And it's just so striking um, how so much of that, um, even the very words can cause those same images that come to mind as we read scripture and bring it to life in a new way. You're right. And and when these stories would have been told around the hearth in a a very early Christian uh, culture, the story, the, the wording and the phrasing from the um, the scriptural stories would have echoed into the, the folk tales. And remember, the folk tales are constantly changing and they're, and they're morphing and they're, they're changing. There's lots of different versions of Rapunzel out there. There's lots of different versions of Little Red Riding Hood. And one of the sad things about the codification of these stories by uh, Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and others in the 19th century is that that uh, living element of the story uh, being part of folk culture uh, disappeared and then being written down. It's a little bit like the lack of imagination, Joan, with with films. Um, something is lost in in that in that uh, codification. Not only do they sanitize them, but I'm in reading some of the older versions of these tales, they also removed a fair bit of the language and the symbolism that did connect with the scriptures. Um, they shortened them, they abbreviated them, and they cut stuff out. Uh, and so... Um, and sometimes the printed word sort of gives an air of authority that once this is written like this, this is the official version. I think we right. see that. We tend to believe anything that's in print because it, somebody wrote it down. But you're right that the, the oral storytelling is its really what people have had. People didn't have paper and pens and things like that. They certainly didn't have computers. So you had to have an oral st- storytelling tradition in order to hand on your culture to the next generation. And the beauty of the oral storytelling tradition is that the, oral, the, the storyteller, I'm sure from time to time, would um, add details or tweak details according to his audience. Um, so, you know, if he was telling this story to a particularly troublesome 10 year old boy he might have stressed how much you know what's the story about the the boy who called wolf for instance uh, you know the naughty boy um he might have stressed how much the the wolf boy was not just punished but the wolf came and ate him up or something you know and you can the oral storytelling allows for some flexibility there so I know some people would say that I you know I've heard this objection before that well you know you were mentioning that there are that the there's the use of story in scripture and i know some people would say well we have limited time with children whether as a parent or as an educator we have limited time so why do why would should we bother reading fairy tales or fantasy why should shouldn't we only read scripture because with limited time that should be our focus and anything else is you know we just don't have time for that what would you say to someone who poses that objection well, what are you going to do that's better than reading a fairy tale? <laughs> Go watch TV. <laughs> I would agree with that, Father. And when you think about, uh, so what am I going to do with my 10-year-old boy, for example? Okay, I am now going to read from the Bible to you, or I'm now going to read you a treatise on whatever. You, that's not going to reach 
that young person. And so we kind of meet them wherever they are. There, I teach, I've been teaching for years and I can't think of a better way to reach my students than through stories because I can give them a whole bunch of facts and I can make them memorize facts and I can make them look things up and research things and all of that. And it doesn't excite the imagination. It doesn't call forth that emotion that we've been talking about. And so um, if you really want to excite them about knowing more and, and starting to think philosophically, because sometimes people don't come through the front door of theology. Sometimes they come through the back door of philosophy, really looking at our human condition, things that are common to all of us. And so how do we live well? How do we live nobly? All of those stories encompass that. And once their imagination is excited, then they're willing to go on and do the tough intellectual work. I think it's an it's interesting. This past year, I was able to teach a course for high school juniors and seniors on apologetics and the creed, and you know, pretty much all of them came in, kind of, you know, internally rolling their eyes and saying, "I've been saying the creed at least once a week for you know, seventeen years, and what am I going to learn here?" and these sorts of things. And before the course started, I was in email contact with Dr. Holly Ordway, who runs a Master's of Arts in Apologetics program. And she had really highly, highly encouraged me to bring in Christian imaginative apologetics throughout the course. And so the challenge for me was, how do you get someone who has heard Genesis 1 and 2 since they were two years old, how do you get them to experience the generosity of God creating the world through new eyes. And so we actually, I had them read a picture book that, you know, with stories about um, like uh, an orange for Frankie, boxes for Katja, different picture books for children, where the theme is just utter gratuity, pure generosity, because I wanted them to to kind of think about this through the lens of a story that, that uh, got their attention. Whoa, 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 God created the world? You know, what does that mean? How much love and generosity does he have? But so often... It's not that it's disconnected from scripture or opposed to scripture or the, the creed or our faith, but in many ways opens their eyes to a new perspective and a new way of experiencing the faith. Someone has said that imagination is the portal to the heart. And uh, it's a good way of saying it. There's another old um, Russian proverb that the heart moves the feet. Uh, and emotion and emotivation are part of the same root word. Uh, and we all know that we'd like to think that we make our decisions based on rational rationality and, and reasonableness. But more often than not, we, we, we act according to our heart. We act according to what we feel. Um, and this is, the, this is therefore part of the power of stories and part of the power of myth. I'll take the time just very briefly to tell the story that my script writing teacher told about going to see Star Wars uh, when it first came out. 1977, this movie was totally new. Nobody had done anything like it. And George Lucas had studied with Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, and he was trying to create this myth. He understood what he was doing. Um, and anyway, my, my teacher said uh, he was in, in a cinema in London with 3,000 people, one of these great big old-fashioned movie theaters. And at the moment when Luke drops the the bomb down the, the chute of the, the ventilation chute of the Death Star, and the Death Star blows up, um, he had been coming in uh, and missed twice, and he had his last bomb, and he's on his automatic pilot, and the voice inside says to him, use the force, Luke. Use the force, Luke. It's, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi's voice to go with his spiritual instincts. 
So he pushes the autopilot away and drops the bomb down the chute, blows up the Death Star. And my um, teacher said at that point, the entire cinema stood up and cheered. This was such an exciting movie moment. And that was the catastrophe. okay? And furthermore, my, my movie uh, teacher, who was a Catholic, said at that point, he said 3,000 people said, I believe there's such a thing as good and evil. I want to be on the side of good, and I believe there is a spiritual force that I need to listen to in order to do that. He said, that's, that's the power of movies. He said, no, they didn't walk out of, the, out of the movie theater and say to their date, you know, at the climax of that movie, I had quite a profound metaphysical experience. Um, no, they, it happened deeper than that. And this is why I get so excited about it. And Joan does too, get so excited about stories uh, and movies and myth uh, and storytelling, because this is the power to move people um, in a way that uh, is totally unique. I think you can also use um, movies to see how they have sanitized stories. You know, Father, you mentioned um, the Disney stories and how they've sanitized so many of them. A great example of that is The Little Mermaid, where there are catastrophic consequences for an earlier choice. But Disney fixes all of that, so everybody just lives happily ever after and forget that we almost destroyed the kingdom and killed your father and all of that. So. Um, I think reading the stories, the actual stories, is an antidote to then seeing the sanitized version. At some point, I think it's great to have that conversation about, wow, how did they change this story? And what do you think that means? Um, certainly not when they're very little, but you need to be mindful of the message. Every movie, every story is giving your children some kind of message. So you better know what people are telling your kids and how they may alter that message. And while I lament Disney sanitizing those stories, at least those stories, there was, a, there was innocence and purity to them, whereas now the stories seem to be loaded up with some sort of politically correct agenda, which we have to navigate. So let's say that parents are um, thoroughly inspired now to read fairy tales to their children. And if they have no idea where to begin, where would you suggest? Are there certain books or sources that you would recommend or just practical tips for how they can start to make this part of their life? Well, there's a couple of good websites um, which uh, actually have the fairy tales and folk tales right there. You can whole list. I mean, the one that I go to has um, folk tales from all over the world, uh, and you just click. Oh, let's see the Romanian fairy tales and see what. And there's a dozen fairy tales from Romania and folk tales from Estonia and Japanese folk tales and myth and all the rest. So I search online. There's plenty of resources there, as well as, of course, some classic books too. Yeah, I would agree. Just um, go to the library, go online, just wherever you can find them and just start reading them. You have to just jump in somewhere. You can't necessarily say, I'm going to start at point A and, and go right through the canon. You're just... Um, because they are folk tales, they're going to be spread out and they're going to be multiple versions. And that's another great discussion point. Look at this version versus that version. Why do you suppose that was being emphasized? So just like most things, um, what is that great expression? I think it was G.K. Chesterton as well who said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I kind of live by that rule, meaning that if it's worth doing, you just jump in and don't worry about having it all perfect in order to do it. Just do it. Uh, if a person is imaginative as well, I um, tell your own fairy, make up your own fairy tales and, and get the children to make up their own fairy tales. Um, when my kids were young, we had a, 
uh, we, had, we had various different versions. There was always this family with a mom and a dad and four kids. And um, in one version, they were uh, space adventurers. In another version, they were cowboys. In another version, they all ran off to the circus. And <laughs> they, this family, who were clearly identifiable as my children and <laughs> our family, um, had various adventures. So if you launch out and tell stories your own and... and uh, one of the things uh, that is quite fun is to tell a um, around a circle story uh, in which uh, each person uh, sub subsequently has to tell just a little bit more of the stories. One person begins telling a story, Jimmy and George went and sat in the rocket ship, and then and the next person comes in and says, and Sally came out and set off a firework and the rocket went off. And the story goes on around the, around the circle and, and uh, see what happens. And another activity, if you want to add on to that, is illustrating stories. Have your children draw, if they're artistic, have them draw pictures of their imaginary world. And it's probably a good time to mention, too, since we started this conversation saying that fairy tales are not just for children, to say that it's fine. Actually, my husband and I read um, George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin with each other. You know, we read it aloud to each other um, this winter, um, you know, during the quarantine and everything. And, and, and each night, you know, we'd read a chapter or two or, you know, a group of young adults could get together and read read stories together and discuss them and talk about them. So it's certainly not just something that we need to do with, you know, seven-year-olds, but really that all of us are created for story, not just created to listen to story, but that we are part of a story. And as we listen to these stories, that reinforces that for us that, oh, I am in the story, you know, I am part of this as well. Um, so that is uh, hopefully something that this conversation has kind of um, inspired you to begin reading stories yourself, reading them aloud, experiencing them, and, and knowing that this is part, not just of, you know, a fun hobby, something to do, but that it actually can reignite our faith as well. So Joan and Father Longenecker, thank you so much for being here today to have this discussion. I think it was really fascinating to dig a little more deeply into the power of fairy tales. And I'm so grateful for everything that you were able to share with all of our listeners today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And for those who are interested in more information about the Angelico Project, the website is angelicoproject.org. And Father Longenecker also, as we mentioned, has recorded some of his fairy tales, both some that he's written himself and also some that are probably well known to you. And um, Father, your website is at dwightlongenecker.com. Is that right? Yeah, the stories can be found on my podcast channel at DwightLongenecker.com. Uh, they're behind the paywall there, um, but if people want to join them, become a donor, subscriber, and go behind the paywall, they can. But they're also available free at Breadbox Media. Breadbox Media is a Catholic aggregate which pulls lots of wonderful Catholic podcasts together, uh, and the channel there is True Fairy Tales, and you can listen to them free there. All right, so please feel free to check those resources out as you begin your own journey or continue your own journey with fairy tales. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this production of The Angelico Project Presents. If you would like to learn more about The Angelico Project or explore ways to get involved, please visit angelicoproject.org. Thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless. <laughs>